Thank you, worship team, as always, for leading us. I, I hope you and the congregation, and I have to remind myself all the time, I hope we don't take for granted how incredible our worship team is. Thank you guys for leading us. We're going to be in Psalm 102 this morning. And I've been talking with the college students this summer about prayer. It's something that has been uh, on my heart this summer as I've, I've done a deep dive uh, on Sunday mornings with our college students. And then Psalms have been something that I've been looking at over the last couple years. Uh, we, uh, Johnny and I started doing this last year. Johnny's done better with it this year than I have. But Johnny and I started last year uh, trying to read five Psalms a day. Uh, if you want to do this um, the way we did it, it's really um, an incredibly effective way to read the Psalms. We would read the date, and then you add 30, 60, 90, and 120. And those are your five Psalms that day. And then when you have a 31st, you read Psalm 119. And so every month, you read all of the Psalms, and you go through them 12 times in a year, and you start to see these themes emerge. But, but one of the things about the Psalms that I always found uh, interesting is they're, they're very... Um, organized and they're very um, um, one-dimensional that if it's a, a psalm of lament then it's a psalm of lament and if it's a psalm of praise it's a psalm of praise and if it's a song of kingship then it's a psalm of kingship but I really like Psalm 102 that it's not just one thing because my prayers are not just one thing my prayers are regularly a mix of sorrow and joy a mix of comfort, relief, as well as disquieted soul, a mixture of, of overwhelming gratitude and, as we'll look at today, extended complaint. Psalm 102 is a mix of all these things. And I think it actually speaks really well because it, it reminds me of this decoration that I have now seen on nearly every single business in Lubbock. It really intrigues me. It's pretty minimalist, but you can find it at grocery stores, you can find it at restaurants, fast food and sit down all alike. You can uh, find it at retail, you can find it high-end and uh, lower-end stores. It really intrigues me that this one thing could be found everywhere. And some are, are nicer and some look like they were made with a, a marker by a, a middle schooler, but, but they're there, they're everywhere. And it really did intrigue me that who came up with this idea? They've got to be just rolling in money. Whether These things are everywhere. Every store you go in, they have the same decoration on the front door. Help wanted. All of them. Every single one of them. And I thought, man, that, I think maybe he could have done this psalm a little faster if he had just said, hey, God, I, help wanted. Desperate help wanted. Even in the superscription, in the opening few verses, it's a, a prayer for one afflicted with when faint and pleading before the Lord. He begins, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face in the day of distress. Incline your ear to me and answer quickly, please. Help wanted. All shifts available. We need you here. This doesn't tell us the author, doesn't tell us the occasion, just says a prayer for one afflicted. That sounds like a prayer for me. 
I bet it's a prayer for you. Maybe not today. Maybe today you don't feel afflicted. Maybe this season things are going pretty well. And that's awesome. But I suspect you've felt this way. And if you live long enough, you'll feel this way again. Desperate, crying out that the Lord would help you. I do want to be clear. If you're in this season right now, or doesn't feel like there's any light at the end of the tunnel, I want you to know how sorry I am that you're going through that. And you might be sitting there going, I, I know how this goes, God comes through in the end, but, but it doesn't feel like this time that's happening. I've been there with you. I've had seasons... I've had seasons where I've been there with you. When you drive home from the hospital after having your first kid and the, the baby seat's empty because he's in the NICU, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of light at the end of that tunnel. Just a few years ago, struggling through my call to ministry, Going, this, this is my identity, this is who I am, God. If I don't have this, I'm not who I am. Didn't see any light at that end of that tunnel. I've talked with people who have lost spouses they've been married to for years. It doesn't feel like there's any light at the end of that tunnel. The loss of parents. Incredibly difficult loss of children. I want you to know there is light at the end of the tunnel. It does get better. We're going to look at that this morning, and I, I'm, I'm asking you to hang in there. And I don't mean hang in there for the next 20 minutes till we get to the turn in the song. Hang in there. God is faithful. After he opens it up, he, he begins probably the portion of my prayer life I think I mastered first. Prayer is still something that is elusive to me. I know it's important, and yet I don't know how it works. I, I, I know that there's no guarantees, and yet I know that I'm called to tell God what I need. I, I know it's not all about me in prayer, but also I know God wants to hear the desires of my heart, even though He, even though he already knows them. It, it's elusive to me, but, but certain aspects of prayer I, I've gotten pretty good at over the years. And, and this first section is probably my top prayer skill. It's what the scholars refer to as extended complaint. And he's got three types of complaints here, ones that I think we can all relate to. He's got eye complaints. My life is not going the way I want it to go, and God, you need to fix it. He's got they complaints. God, they're being mean to me, and I want you to fix it. And he's got you complaints. Hey, God, you're not doing your job, and I want you to fix it. Verses 3 through 11. My days pass away like smoke. My bones burn like a furnace. My heart is stricken and withered like 
grass. I'm too wasted to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I'm like an owl of the wilderness, like a little owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely bird on the housetop. All day long, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread, mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have lifted me up, thrown me aside. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Dramatic, to say the least. But the psalmist is desperate. In a personal wasteland. Devastated by where his or her life is right now. He says, I I wither away. Finishes with this uh, really... A beautiful double image of death, the nightfall and shadows, both used regularly by the psalmist. And he says, my, my shadow is lengthening as the sun sets. The night is, is coming quickly. I'm watching my shadow get longer, knowing that the end is coming. He says, I, I can't even eat but for ashes. I, I have nothing to drink but my tears. And I'm lonely. Now, there's a lot of speculation about when he's writing this or she's writing this and and what's happening. And and one of the more common understandings is maybe this is being written during uh, the uh, siege of Jerusalem as they are being captured by the Babylonians and taken away sometime in that season, maybe even shortly after they arrive in Babylon uh, or those who are left in Jerusalem and the walls are down and the the best and the brightest are gone and now you get left. It's rough when an enemy army comes to take slaves and says no thank you Uh, and so it's a lose-lose scenario here and somewhere in that uh, this psalm might have been written it's kind of confusing to say I'm lonely when if this is written at that time this person would most certainly have been surrounded by people it's a unique kind of loneliness when you feel lonely despite having people everywhere. It's hard to explain to people. It's hard to articulate. Chronic illness is easy to go, hey, this is what I'm struggling with right now. Most people go, oh my gosh, that is heartbreaking. This kind of isolation It's hard to explain. And he says, the only reprieve I get from loneliness is mockery. The only time I don't feel alone is when my enemies are making fun of me. Says they've just changed my name into a curse. Benedict Arnold, Etu Brute, Judas, right? These names that we now just associate with these things. He says, my, my only thing I ever hear I'm either alone on a housetop, a little owl, an unclean animal, by the way, uh, according to Pentateuchal law, uh, an unclean animal. I'm either alone 
or derided. And you, God, this is your fault. Now, he's not the first one, right? This is the beginning of time. The woman you made ate the apple. Your anger and indignation put us in this position. Now, let's back up a little bit. Let's assume uh, with the, the prevailing scholarship, let's assume that maybe this is written around the siege of Jerusalem and the overtaking by Babylon. Uh, if you remember Habakkuk, fascinating prophet because Habakkuk never talks to anybody. Uh, you could say he indirectly speaks to us, but Habakkuk is given a beautiful prophecy, a very clear prophecy, maybe the clearest prophecy of what God is planning to do moving forward and never tells anybody or chooses not to record that he told anybody. But if you will recall with me, Habakkuk is sitting before God and he says, God, you have fallen asleep at the will. Justice is losing and injustice is winning. Evil is escaping your hand. You're not doing anything. Wake up. To which God says, Habakkuk, actually I am doing something. The problem is if I tried to explain to you, precious Habakkuk, what I was doing, you wouldn't believe me. And so Habakkuk says, well, try me. And he says, okay, what I'm doing is because of years of, of adultery on behalf of the Israelites in a relationship to their God, because you have been disobedient for years and years and years and years, I'm going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're going to overthrow Jerusalem and you're going to be slaves for generations. And Habakkuk says, I don't believe you. That's not the way you work. What Habakkuk meant was that's not the way I want you to work. And, but he says that's not the way you work. You don't do that. God, you don't use our enemies to correct us. To which God says hop up in your watch post and pay attention and you'll see that everything I said comes to pass. Spoiler alert, everything he said came to pass. But much like that, the psalmist is going, okay, uh, you got us into this mess and I suspect, although it is a very dangerous practice to speak on behalf of God if you're not reading directly from Scripture, I suspect God's going, no, 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 it's not my fault. This is reproof. This is judgment. This is uh, really my love exercised in a way that you'd rather it not be exercised. This is discipline. But at this point, the psalmist doesn't care why. It's everybody else's fault that his life is not the way he'd like it to be. He's angry. But I think it's beautiful that he doesn't pretend not to be angry. It's really a baffling contradiction that we would pray and in so believing that the God of the universe, creator of all things seen and unseen, knows our thoughts and our words, and yet mask it by trying to pretend to be not as upset as we are, or not as angry or even confused as we are. If you're going to pray, the implicit understanding then is you believe God hears those prayers, and it's a bit bizarre that then you would think you could hold some things back. The psalmist here has nothing to hold back. And according to Scripture, God's going to allow us to pray this way. 
Now, Job continues to pray this way, and God does say, okay, Job, uh, where were you when I put the galaxies in the sky? Where were you when I laid the foundations of this earth? There is a point where we have to shift, but God is not afraid of your angry prayers. God is not afraid of your doubting prayers. God is not afraid of your uh, disappointed prayers. God is not afraid of your confused prayers. And I think you ought to pray your heart if you're going to pray at all. And we have a shift. He's complained in an extended way. Nothing's changed yet. But we have a shift in tone. So much so that there were commentaries that go, this can't be the same prayer. He was just so angry, he can't say these next things. And to those uh, people, I'd say, have you ever prayed? Because my prayers are never one thing. So for the second movement, we go from angry, contempt for the Lord, for his circumstance, for his enemies, to some incredibly bold declarations of faith. Verse 12, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Now, I do want to point out, there's no uh, punctuation, uh, there's no commas and periods in the original Hebrew. We have to, uh, have to find ways to make it make sense. And, and I do think our English translations, the, the bigger ones, do a phenomenal job of this. I think they've done a really good job. People far smarter than me or you have, have said this is where it makes most sense syntactically. Uh, but I do think here we lose some of the urgency of the transition when we say in verse 11, I wither away like grass, period, pause, process, and now we're going to move into the next movement and the paragraph begins. I think it's easier to understand the way his prayer works or her prayer works. It's I wither away like grass, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Your name endures to all generations. You will rise up and have compassion in Zion, for it is time to favor it. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold its stones dear and have pity on its dust. The nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord will build up Zion. He will appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and he will not despise their prayer. This is not a declaration of what he thinks might happen if he read this right and understood this right and if he carried the one and if he moved it over and then if he, he, if he uh, deduced correctly then this may be the way things. He says, no, 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 I understand you are forever and for always and you will do the things you've said you will do. For most of us, this is the retrospective prayer. In the midst of crisis, I am good at extended complaint. I am bad at declarations of faith. Now, retrospectively, I look back and I go, oh my goodness, I, okay, I see where God was moving. I see where he was shaping and molding and redeeming things caused by the sin of this world. I, I can see now where God was moving in that circumstance. And because of that, I can declare my faith. But the psalmist here, nothing's changed from verse 11 to verse 12. Things are not better. If you don't believe me, we'll get back where the psalmist says, hey, hey, God, in case you forgot, I know we took a shift, but I am still suffering. I don't think it's any better than it was. And yet he can say with faith, 
God will do it. Because he said he'll do it. God will rescue because he said he'll rescue. God will redeem because he said he'll redeem. Ultimately, God will return because he said he'll return. And then what I think the crux of the passage is, he gives us this paradigm for dealing with affliction. This lens. I think most of us now have some sort of corrective lens. Without these, I, I can still see that you're there. I don't worry, I can still see the edge of the stage. Can't make out all the details, and for some of you that's a good thing. Uh, but I, I can see, I, I, I know you're here, but I don't see well. But when I, when I put on my corrective lenses, well, I can see clearly. And the world has is, is offered you a lens to see affliction through. The problem is it's, it's ill-fit for carrying forward. It's only fit for wallowing in pity. Right? The lenses the world provides for how to walk through affliction only is fit for you to wallow in self-pity. But if you want to carry on not leaving your despair, your doubt, your anxiety, your depression, but carry on with those things and keep moving forward, it's going to require some corrective lenses. I think the psalmist gives us a fairly well laid out corrective lens. First thing that's important to know when dealing with affliction, he says, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that the people yet unborn may praise the Lord. That's you. That's me. So he looked down, that he looked down from his holy height. From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of his prisoners. We serve an attentive Lord. It's easy to feel like you've gotten out of the microscope. That maybe God doesn't see what I'm going through. He's got a lot to see. He's got, there's a lot of people in the world. And how can he keep an eye on everybody? It's Santa Claus on Christmas Eve. How's he, how's he do it, right? And so we go, how, how does he see me? I, I, it just feels like maybe he forgot about this one. I want you to know, Whatever it is you're going through now, whatever it is you're coming out of, whatever you might face in the future, we serve an attentive God who knows you better than you know you and loves you in a way that you can't imagine. And I think this is difficult for most of us to understand. There's a large study called the National Study of Youth and Religion, started in 2006. It's still carrying on now. Uh, Ken Creasy Dean's the lead researcher on this. And, and they study teenagers in their articulation of faith. And evangelicals, that's you and I, that's this, this church, scored very poorly. And uh, lest you get too carried away with, look, see, I knew this next generation's the end. And, and they screwed it up. They didn't learn from nobody. Somebody taught them. And when they started interviewing young evangelicals about their faith, they had to make up a new term for what it is they believe, because it's not evangelical Christianity historically. They made up the phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism. And they said, as we start talking to teenagers, what we're realizing is they don't actually believe the core pillars of Christianity that have been taught for a long time. What they actually believe is moralistic therapeutic deism. 
I'm supposed to be good, I'm supposed to be happy, and there is a God. That's what they actually believe. And if we're not careful, every single one of us can fall into that trap. That there's a a God out there somewhere. Access to this God is maybe theoretically possible, but not really attainable, and I've never really experienced it. But I'm pretty sure that God wants me to be a good boy and a happy boy. And so the idea of a personal, attentive, caring God, if we're honest, is foreign to most of us. Now you add on to that the layer that most of us spend a large amount of time crafting the facade that we want other people to see and believe about who we are. Right? We spend a lot of time uh, uh, hiding the things that embarrass us about ourselves and presenting the thing we want people to see. Right? That house has to be spotless before anybody comes over because heaven forbid they know we live here. Right? Social media. No, no, no. We want to pour, uh, paint a picture. Kids get along. Marriage is happy all the time. Even when we want to be vulnerable on social media, we clap. We go, oh, my God, they're so vulnerable. Even then we get to pick what we want to be vulnerable about. And we get to hide the things we're not thrilled about. Most of us spend from 8 to 5 on Monday through Friday experiencing what uh, uh, researchers call imposter syndrome, knowing that inside we are ill fit for the job we've been given. And as soon as they figure out that we're not supposed to be here, they're going to fire me. Right? We function all day without even thinking about it, painting this facade of this is the real me. And if they, if they ever find out that this is the real me, I'm out. And so the idea that there's an attentive God that knows all that about me and more and yet still chooses to love me is foreign to most of us. I think everybody in this room go, yeah, God loves us. But you need to understand, it is a very different thing to say, I love you guys, to look over here at Sean and say, Sean, I love you. Those are two very different things. I don't think anybody in here has any problem with, yeah, God loves people. In theory, he loves me. But the idea of an attentive, knowing all the things about me, God, That's foreign and scary. And yet I promise you it's the best news we could get. But he doesn't stop there. He's not just attentive. 20B, to set free those who were doomed to die. He doesn't just pay attention. He acts on behalf of you and on behalf of me. Now, I want to be very clear because I do not want anybody to walk out here misunderstanding. What I'm not saying is because God is attentive and he acts, that if you pray the right way and the right frequency for the right duration, then God will fix whatever circumstance you're in quickly. You know, a scary truth for me, it may not fix it at all this side of eternity. I, I've come to terms with this. And I'm going to continue to pray 
the opposite direction, but I've come to terms with the fact that I may live the remainder of my life with generalized anxiety disorder. Those with depressive episodes in this room, you may live the remainder of your life carrying depression with you. Those with physical ailments, you may live the remainder of your life with physical ailments, with that physical ailment. I'll pray with you if you'll let me to, that God would remove that from you, but I, that's not what I'm promising today. And I don't want anybody to go out of here thinking that, okay, the reason I haven't been healed or the reason I haven't been relieved of depression or the reason I haven't been relieved of anxiety is because I haven't prayed right yet. So I gotta, I gotta try it a different way or I gotta do it differently. Or I haven't prayed long enough or I haven't prayed hard enough or I haven't prayed seriously enough. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is God doesn't just pay attention. He acts on your behalf and on mine. And sometimes that is in little ways. Sometimes that is in big ways. And ultimately, a lot of times it's in his physical presence as we live the rest of this life. And when we enter the next life, we get to walk into his arms free of all those things. That's what I can guarantee. I can't guarantee this side of the equation. But one day, when God comes back to gather up his people like a treasured possession, we will walk into the arms of Jesus free of these things. Because God is a God who rescues. And despite how it feels, he's a God who rescues and does not tarry. Now you'll be going, eh, it feels like he's tarrying. Right, I saw a video, he said seven of the nine markers are here. And listen, if, if that interests you to try to guess, that's fine. Jesus said he didn't know and wasn't worried about it. I'd encourage you not to be worried about it either. Uh, but, but until then, I've got no promises, but there will be a day where the God who rescues in his timing will rescue. And we can declare that with faith, which brings us to the third movement of this paradigm for affliction. God sees, God acts, and we worship. So that all these things before, he hears, he acts, so that the name of the Lord may be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem when people gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. All of it is so that we get to worship Jesus. People ask me all the time, how am I to get through this? And sometimes you may go, that's not even that big of a deal. Sometimes it's bigger stuff, loss of a job, big, big stuff, loss of a spouse, child, parent. But it all feels big in the, in the, in the moment. And people want to know, how, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to move forward? And I'd encourage you like Ken encouraged you. There's never a bad time to stand up and praise Jesus. Evan, I, 
I lost my job. I have kids. It's never a bad time to stand up and praise Jesus. You go, but Evan, I'm not even, I'm not even sure I, I, I feel those things right now. Never a bad time to stand up and praise Jesus. You go, yeah, but I, I'm at the very end of my life, and there's nothing that can be done to change that. It's never a bad time to stand up and praise Jesus. Psalmist seems to think after this great faith, maybe God forgot he was sad, so he, he does come back to that. And he's broken my strength in mid-course. He's shortened my days. Oh, my God, I say, don't take me away at the midpoint of my life, yet whose years endure through all generations. And then he gives us a beautiful worship song. He says this to God. Long ago you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. They'll wear out like a garment. You change them like clothing, and they pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no ends. The children of your servants shall live secure. Their offspring shall be established in your presence. You find yourself today in that tunnel of affliction and as you look towards the direction you think you should be walking and you say there's, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's never a bad time to stand up and praise Jesus. Let's pray. God, you're good and you're for our good. For that we're grateful. Forgive us when we take it for granted. God, I pray that you would do something in and through the lives of the people in this room as we leave this room and in their homes, in their workplaces, in their relationships, in this community that we can't take credit for. God, I pray that you would do something so big that our only explanation would simply be God did that. It's your name I pray. Amen. Just a reminder, if the Lord has prompted you this morning and you want to reach out to someone and ask questions about salvation about baptism, if you just need us to walk alongside you in your season of affliction and you want prayer, you want staff to come alongside you, if you just have questions about faith and what it means to be a member here, what it means to call yourself a believer, we'd invite you to text our number 833-571-3475 and a staff member will reach out to you. Uh, it is uh, an honor to get to walk with you guys through your triumphs and your sorrows. So text that number and we'll, we'll do that in a formal way. Uh, if you'll stand now, we'll close with this benediction from Paul in Romans 15. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus so that Together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.